0: Our scripture this morning before the lesson is found in Matthew 18, 1 through four. Matthew 18, 1 through four. That can also be found in our Bibles in front of the pews on page 823. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?'
1: Thank you, Gary, for the scripture reading. Uh, Just a few things before I get started this morning. Just a few people and things that I'm very thankful for. Um, I'm thankful for all the work that goes into uh, setting up the PowerPoints, for example, that Joe Brewer does. I'm thankful for the song leaders, particularly today, I'm thankful for Robert, I'm thankful for Landon, Um, especially their patience with me as I have changed my mind at several points about what I was gonna do and when and have been incredibly scatterbrained. I'm very thankful for their patience and thoughtfully picking out these songs. Um, I'm just thankful for all, for all the contributions that are made um, to putting these together. You may notice that we have a bit of a drop in terms of the number of people that were here. Uh, many, many in our number are at an event called Polishing the Pulpit, PTP. Uh, it's just this great time of study and worship to God um, that had to, takes place in Tennessee. And so uh, John Baker, for example, he's given giving, he's giving a lesson over there uh, for that and uh, Jordan is involved with that as well. So we're just thankful for, for them getting to, uh, to do that and thankful for all those who are, who are visiting Tennessee right now, engaged in that great work. And I also just, one last thing, uh, want to just really say how thankful I am for the work that's gone into the WEI effort. Um, and I'm especially thankful for the students um, that are here this morning as well. Many of them sitting with their, their teachers that they were with over the course of this week. A WEI, that's referring to World English Institute, it's this um, two-week uh, program that we just had where uh, many people have given their time to, uh, to teach material from the Bible, teaching people English. Um, and so thankful for all of those who can to that, and especially Justin and Mindy Spear. They put so much time and effort into that, and I'm just very thankful for them. So just to all the teachers that were involved in that, thank you for your willingness to serve. And for the students, we are so, so glad that you're here. And if you have any questions about why we do what we do, the things that we say, let us know, and we will do our very best to answer. And we really, really hope that we get to see you even beyond this worship service today. When talking through a certain case, Sherlock Holmes said this, perhaps when a man has special knowledge and special powers like my own, it rather encourages him to seek a complex explanation when a simpler one is at hand. In other words, Holmes was a skilled detective and it was only natural for him to want to use every skill at his disposal in every case. At the same time, sometimes the complex has to make way for the simple. We tend to overcomplicate things, don't we? We instinctively push the door when we could have first read the instruction to pull on the door. We use 10 dishes to cook when we could have just used four. We try to remember the name of a song or a movie when we could have looked it up 20 minutes ago. We all have different talents, but I believe we all have moments of stardom when it comes to overcomplicating things. Biblical questions are often the subject of overcomplication. This is not to say that all questions are created alike. Some are truly difficult. Some doctrines are easier to explain than others, as are some books of the Bible. However, some questions are made more difficult than they actually are. Our time today will be spent on one of those questions and a foundational one at that. What does the gospel require? What does the gospel require? Does the gospel require expertise? Does it require wealth? Does it require the right connections? The gospel does not require any of those things. Please understand, God did not give the gospel message in order to confuse us. Despite all the different answers you may hear to this simple question, the biblical answer really boils down to two things. No expertise is required. The gospel is not an equation or a puzzle. The fact of the matter is that the gospel, though difficult to accept, is easy to understand. Please turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, which was read for us just a moment ago. This passage clearly indicates what is required to be a citizen of God's kingdom, his church. And these four verses are replete with truth despite their simplicity. And so their simplicity is, in fact, their greatest strength. So the text reads as follows. At that time, the disciples approached Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling a child to himself, he placed him in the midst of them. And he said, truly I say to you, if you do not turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever will humble himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So according to this passage, what does the gospel require? What does Jesus demand of us if we are to follow him? All the gospel requires is for you to turn and become like a child. At its core, the gospel is that simple. All that's required of you is to turn and become like a child. And those are our two points for this morning. To begin, see that Jesus tells his own disciples that they must turn. It is an innately simple term, yet its force in Matthew 18 and verse 3 is directly related to turning from one manner of behavior to another. Rarely is it the case that words themselves have theology attached to them. The context, however, makes clear that this turning illustrates something important. The gospel is about change. Note first that Jesus wants us to change. It is true that you should come as you are, but you also must be ready to change when you come. The gospel has never been about saying how you are, but about changing who you are through Jesus Christ. Luke 5 gives clear indication that this is the case. Jesus has called his first disciples, Peter, James, and John, in verses 1 through 11 of Luke chapter 5. And after healing a leper and a paralytic, he calls Levi, who we know as Matthew, in verses 27 and 28. There is no textual reason to argue that these four had no choice but to follow Jesus. They were not forced to do so. Uh, Mind you, these specific individuals, the apostles, were indeed chosen. John 15 and verse 16 elaborates on that. However, that does not contradict the fact that they answered when Jesus called. Uh, Note that we are using the word call accommodatively or just in a broad sense here. Luke 5 only has the term for call in verse 32, and it does not negate choice. That is important for what happens next, as Levi gives a banquet for Jesus in his home. So in Luke 5, see verses 29 through 32. We'll be reading there for a moment. And Levi prepared a great banquet for him in his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled about them to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And answering, Jesus said to them, Those who are healthy have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. In the same way that the sick need medical care, the sinful need spiritual care. And so Jesus was not eating with these individuals to justify their sins, but to urge them to leave their sins. Tax collectors, for example, often took financial advantage of people. This is why Jesus compliments Zacchaeus, a tax collector willing to return by fourfold anything that he had taken by fraud in Luke 19 verses 8 and 9. Other sinners were around in the first century just like they are in the 21st century. I am one of them and so are you. When Jesus says he came to call sinners to repentance, he is saying that we need to change. We need to decide that our sins are wrong and that we need to stop walking in them. Yet we return to Matthew 18 and verse 3 to say that to turn is more than to stop walking in one direction. It means pivoting to walk in another direction. Jesus wants us to change, and it means pivoting, and it means stopping our ways that displease Him, to walk in ways that do please Him. Along that line, notice that Jesus wants to change us. We have the opportunity to become different people. We get to start anew. Second Corinthians chapter five touches upon this point. Verses 14 and 15 in 2 Corinthians 5 indicate that as Christ has died for all people, all who are in Christ have died to themselves to live for him. It is upon this foundation that Paul says this in verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Again, this is about turning from one direction to go in another. The world teaches us to do what glorifies ourselves. The world says to pursue whatever goals, lifestyles, and accolades make us happy. And I do not mean to entirely dismiss that notion. At the same time, I must dismiss it when it comes to sin. We all must dismiss it when it comes to sin. Our goals are often ungodly. Our wanted lifestyles are often sinful. And our desired accolades are often due to pride. Temptations to sin are described as opportunities to express ourselves and to come into our own. While the world tells us to enjoy ourselves and live in sin, the Lord tells us to deny ourselves and follow him, Matthew 16 and verse 24. But observe what 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 teaches us about all of this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How does one become in Christ? The Bible says that we must repent of our sins and be baptized in water to be forgiven of our sins, to be brought into Christ. Know what Romans 6, 1 through 4 says. Romans 6, 1 through, Romans 6, 1 through 4. Uh, Excuse me, one moment. What will we say then? Should we persist in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. We who died to sin, how will we still live in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him with Christ, but we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised up from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also may walk in newness of life. Being buried with Christ only happens through baptism. But but notice also that baptism is supposed to be exemplary of a new way of living. It is how an accountable person is saved, but it is doubtless connected with the repentance that we mentioned earlier. This is why the Apostle Peter commands both in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Only through repentance and baptism do we become people who are in Christ, people who have been changed through Christ. As such, upon becoming a Christian, the old things have passed away, behold the new things have come. Several things are being discussed in this context, but most pertinent to us at this moment is that a new person is born when they choose to be in Christ. There's no remnant of the old person, the new person has completely taken their place. This is only possible through the change Jesus gives us. Yet these two forms of change are inseparable. You can't break them apart and say that you're doing God's will. Jesus expects the accountable to take responsibility for their own actions, having a genuine desire and a plan to change what they're doing. Only then can we be in Christ. It does not mean that we've we've made the decision to be perfect. Mentioned this to to the high school group just earlier today. We don't make the decision to be perfect when we decide to become Christians. No, we, we can't be. We will continually need to change and improve ourselves. It's why 2 Peter 3.18 says, for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Perfection is not expected of the Christian, growth is. And most of all, understand that we have made the decision to be changed by Jesus, as we have likewise chosen to change ourselves. If we choose to change what we do, Jesus will change who we are. In other words, the gospel requires us to turn. Turning is only half of the equation, though. Jesus secondly says each of us must become like a child. In Matthew 18 and verse 3, the individual child is used to describe all children. Jesus then points out a key attribute that makes children the example for kingdom entrance. Several examples, several attributes really could be pointed out here, such as their innocence, their purity, their honesty. However, none of those are what Jesus explicitly elevates about children. Look at what verse 4 actually says in Matthew 18. Therefore, whoever will humble himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus refers to the individual child, but his point is still about all children. What exactly is it then that makes children, including the child in this narrative, so exemplary? Plainly, the key is humility. It is the humility to not think too highly of yourself, your beliefs, or your lifestyle to change. It is about the ability to say, Lord, you are right and I am wrong. It's about saying, not my will but thine, rather than not thy will but mine. I do want you to notice that the command to become like children here is given to the adults. That In this case, the disciples are being referred to. Understand, an infant cannot turn. The infant is incapable of repenting. They can't do that. And if, and if, a, and if an infant cannot repent, why then should they be baptized? There are no sins charged against him, and as such, there's no need for that infant to be forgiven of them through baptism. Going up a bit in age, though, a child cannot become like a child. Only someone who's not a child can do that. Otherwise, the the simile here, the analogy, it loses all of its meaning. It is the one whose sins hold him accountable to God, the one who knows he must repent, the one who knows he must change his ways, that must turn and become like a child. The refusal to turn and become like a child, and please hear this clearly, it's not just an obstacle to entering the kingdom. It is a wall. Within verse three is the strongest way to negate something in the entire Greek language. It's denying the very possibility of something. And so Jesus is saying here that unless you turn and become like a child, you will never under any circumstances enter the kingdom of heaven. According to Jesus, the way to spiritually grow up is to become like children. Being spiritually childlike is a divine mandate. It's a command of the Lord. And failing to do this is to forfeit any chance of becoming a Christian. Our Lord said just as much in Matthew 23. He's been rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees up to this point, And at this point, he's, he's doing this concerning their arrogance. And wrapping up that point, look at what he says in Matthew 23 and verse 12. And whoever will exalt himself will be humbled, and whoever will, whoever will humble himself will be exalted. Contextually, this shows the arrogance, or shows how the arrogance of these religious leaders would lead to later humbling, whereas the humble and unassuming would be exalted instead. However, the principle is nonetheless clear. The kingdom is for the humble. Those who believe they have no need to be saved will not be saved. Those who believe based on their own works that they deserve to be saved will not be saved. Those who believe based on their intellect that they should be saved because they're so smart, they will not be saved. Only those who believe that they are in need of a savior, those who commit their lives to Jesus Christ in his way will be saved. It's for that reason that we must be willing to yield. We must be willing to yield. It may take a hundred times. You've told your child to, to, to clean up his room. It may take a hundred times, but eventually that child is going to yield. Maybe you have to raise the stakes a little bit. Maybe, maybe you, you threaten to take something away from them or to punish them in some type of way. But eventually, unless they're particularly hard-headed like I was, they will yield. Is it right for us To come to Jesus and tell him that we are perfect as we are? That's what many of us do. And we obviously know that that's not right, but again, that's what many of us do. Perhaps this one is a little more relatable. How many of us come to Jesus and tell him that we are just fine as we are? We accept that mediocrity. These kinds of responses do not indicate a willingness to yield. They never can. They don't indicate a willingness to humble ourselves. How do we respond when the Bible, God's word, tells us something challenging? Do we receive scripture's challenges or do we instead challenge scripture? Do we let the truth change us or do we try our best to change the truth? James tells us what our answers ought to be to those questions. In the first chapter, if you would look in verses 19 through 21, James 1, 19 through 21, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. Therefore, let us lay aside all uncleanness and abundant wickedness. Receive with meekness or receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. When faced with the truth, far too many of us are quick to speak and slow to hear. We continue to talk when the truth should have silenced us. We angrily respond to the truth as if the truth will change due to our vitriol. We must lay aside our wickedness and humbly receive the word, shouldn't we? Only through it does anyone truly change. Only then can a person truly follow this command and become like a child. I want us to return to our friends in Acts chapter 2 for a second. Peter had preached the first gospel sermon, and I want us to see what the word was able to do, what this sermon was able to do for these people. In verse 37, and when they heard, or when, and when they heard this, they were pierced in the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, "What should we do, brothers?" The text clearly says that they were pierced in the heart when they heard. Any other conclusion adds to the text here. They received the word humbly and then with the utmost respect, referring to Peter and the other apostles, asked them what they ought to do next. When Peter told them to repent and be baptized in Acts 2.38, we've talked about that. The text tells us that those who received his word were baptized. 3,000 of them in all, verse 41 tells us. They were saved in one way, added to one church, living by one standard in verse 42. That is a willingness to yield, a willingness that we all ought to mirror. I want to repeat our earlier question. What does the gospel actually require? What does it require of you and me? By this point, I pray the answer's clear. It does not require an impressive resume. It doesn't require academic excellence or expertise. It doesn't require a subscription or a premium package. All the gospel requires is for you to turn and become like a child. All it takes is the humility to say that God's way is superior to our way and that we must be saved in his way. That way is simple. And we've discussed several individuals today who gave their lives to Jesus, surrendering to him and deciding to live for him. They accepted that Christ was the son of God, is the son of God. They repented of their sins and were baptized in water to be forgiven of those sins. And when they did did that, they died to their sins. They became new creations and they were added to the Lord's church. We can do what they did. We can and must be saved in the way that they were saved. Heaven's invitation is extended to you at this time. Whether you need to be brought into the fold of God or just need the prayers of your fellow sheep at this time, won't you come as together we stand and we sing.